What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 594 with my guests, Ethan O'Brien and Dr. Sasha Blaskovich. I don't know why I said Blaskovich. <laughs> said that like I had a resentment against them. Yeah, Dr. Sasha Blaskovich. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist, not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Website for this show is mentalpod.com and mentalpod also the social media handles you can follow us at. Uh, let's dive into some surveys. This is from a new survey uh, called The Moment of Growth and Recovery. And uh, LC uh, says uh, to the question, share a moment that felt like it. Actually, it's not a question, it's a statement, it's an order. Share a moment that felt like a victory or epiphany in your healing, growing, recovering. When I learned about intergenerational trauma and could see the lines of emotional neglect and mental illness, I was able to feel genuine compassion for my parents and myself. And you know what I love about that one is not only feeling compassion for yourself and being able to step back and and see things kind of objectively, but that you felt compassion for your parents. I mean, that to me is really a sign of of healing. And when we feel forgiveness, you know, to me, when people say you should forgive such and such, you know, I say, fuck off. Forgiveness to me is a byproduct of internal work. And if it comes great, if it doesn't, so be it. It's a feeling for me. True healing. True true forgiveness. Uh, same survey. Anne writes, being able to clearly and concisely state why I won't do something that I feel uncomfortable doing. That is awesome. And it's so hard for people pleasers. It's like, well, I don't want them to hate me. Then what am I going to do? Everybody's going to talk about me. That means I'm a terrible person and I'll die alone. Uh, same uh, same uh, survey filled out by Jason and he writes, writing down a list of goals, about six items. The first was to find a therapist. After several failed attempts, I, did it, I decided to go into an office and was set up with a the therapist that day. After the session, I was so excited to be able to check something off my list, moving closer to my dreams and moving closer to recovery. Dude, 
You're a fucking go-getter. High five. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by doom and gloom on a lovely afternoon, and she writes, bird watching. When I sit outside with a cup of tea and silently observe the activities of birds, it feels like I'm being permitted to witness an alien world filled with natural beauty and magic. They sometimes surprise me with goofball antics and clumsy bloopers, too, as they are not always so graceful, but they don't give a fuck. <laughs> I love how that started off like, you know, like something that uh, Maggie Smith would say on uh, Downton Abbey, and then it just turns into, they don't give a fuck. And birds don't give a fuck. I think in, in the uh, encyclopedia right next to their picture, it just says, they don't give a fuck. They don't care. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, the topic for this month is uh, burnout. And uh, I've definitely felt that. I've definitely felt burnout before, whether it's in a relationship or it's professional or it's just the mean shit that I tell myself. But uh, for me, one of the things that I love about therapy, and in particular uh, online therapy, because I love not having to leave my house, is finding tools to deal with that inability to set boundaries or or give myself a break. So if you've never tried uh, BetterHelp, uh, it's customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, you get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And uh, make sure that you include the slash metal part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis? It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself and another thing. And uh, she struggles with borderline personality disorder with dissociative and psychotic features. And a snapshot from her life, she writes, Imagine what you felt the last time someone you loved died suddenly. Imagine that breakup that crushed you. Imagine what it felt like when someone you trusted with your whole heart betrayed you. 
Imagine the last time you were hungry and couldn't find anything to eat. Now imagine those feelings all at once, inexplicably coursing through your body and tormenting your mind all the time. A fever pitch every waking second of every fucking day. Sometimes the pain is so extreme I could vomit, and it feels like I am being whipped from the inside. Wow, thank you for that one. Whew. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by Dogwood. And they write, I love the tiny details of spring. Vivid green shoots pushing up through dead leaves. Barely there, buds on tree branches. Nature's slow build of anticipation for summer. I love the way my partner plays with his beard when he's deep in thought. I love when he laughs and I can see his teeth. I love finding him asleep with both of our cats curled up on top of him. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live... Fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm here with Ethan O'Brien and Dr. Sasha Blaskovich. Did I pronounce those uh, correctly? Well, I'm pretty sure I got O'Brien nailed, but uh, you did. You, uh, did. you guys are both uh, athletes. Dr. Blaskovich was quarterback for the University of Calgary in the 90s. You guys won a national title. Did I get that right? That's correct. Yep. That's pretty badass. Yeah, so, has been athlete. <laughs> well, <laughs> how old are you? 46. Well, George Blanda played till he was 46. So, you know, let that weigh on your conscience. <laughs> I think I took on a better career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Ethan, you uh, play inline hockey at a pretty damn high level. You played on uh, Team Canada in the, in the Junior Olympics and you guys won a gold medal. Dude, that's impressive. Thank you. Yeah, it, well, we, uh, we went to Hawaii back in 2016 for a, a summer tournament there. And, and how old are you? Uh, I'm 28 now. Uh, and I'm going to imagine, because you're Canadian, uh, you you play ice as well. Yeah, ice hockey, inline hockey, and ball hockey when I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, when you did the, uh, I apologize to the people that aren't geeks about uh, hockey, but fuck you, this is my podcast. Um, <laughs> when you guys played at the uh, the junior olympics are you using uh an inline puck or a ball uh we're using the inline puck have those gotten any better since the day of the orange puck with the little feet on them yeah uh the technology's come a little bit better uh there's a few brands that make some good pucks yeah um, that are usually the typical ones that are used in tournaments there's still those crappy ones that are really cheap for like outdoor hockey right. uh, typically we use indoor ones and they cost like eight to ten dollars a piece so they're they're pretty high end and do, do they have a little more heft to them than the, the, the 
or empty orange ones that feel like you're <laughs> shooting a feather? Yeah, I believe they're about two thirds the weight of an ice hockey. Puck. So oh, it's a okay. little bit lighter, but most of the weight is there. Yeah. And then it hurts more when you get hit. That's yeah. always the downside. Uh, so you guys have a long history of uh, concussions. Uh, Ethan, for you, going back to when you were eight years old, what what happened? Oh, and, and I want to plug uh, the, the book, by the way. It's called Dr. B's Concussion Breakthrough, and it's uh, selling very well on, on Amazon. And, you know, as is, they say, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I'm going to take a wild guess that your your guys history of trying to find ways to treat your concussions has has fed your passion for putting this together yeah it's 100 percent. yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh ethan uh, take us back to when you were when you were eight what happened yeah so i was i was playing a uh, uh, rep ice hockey back in the day and uh, myself and another player we were looking off in the distance uh at the the puck and what was going on in the play and we both happened to just run into each other because we both weren't looking straight ahead. We were looking off to the side. Right. And uh, glided, fell backwards, and smashed my head hard on the ice. Um, uh, coaches came out and helped me off the rink. And But this was about 20 years ago, so there wasn't really any kind of protocols or teaching for coaches about what to do if you suspect a kid has a concussion. So my coaches ended up letting me go back out after about five, mu- five minutes because I was a young kid. I thought I was tough and invincible and I just wanted to, you know, keep playing hockey. So I was like, Oh yeah, I just shook it off. I'm good to go. Um, then I went uh, to a friend's house after the game. Um, and about three hours in, I started feeling really sick to my stomach, very nauseous, a uh, very bad headache. And uh, I called my parents to come pick me up because I, I knew something wasn't right. And went home, uh, slept it off, woke up the next day and it felt like a, a sack of bricks had been dropped on my head. I could hardly walk. Um, any light inside my room was really bothering my head and my, and my symptoms. And I ended up spending about the next 10 days pretty much stuck to my bed and just crawling to the bathroom, crawling to the dining table to eat, uh, crawling up to the kitchen, that kind of stuff. I couldn't even walk around for longer than 20 or 30 seconds without feeling like I was about to uh, pass out or collapse on the ground or something. Holy shit. And, and it ate, it, are younger brains more susceptible when, when they experience a concussions because they're still forming? Uh, I think Dr. B would be a, a good, good. Uh, you know what? I don't want to hear from him. <laughs> you just pipe down Dr. B you and your bullshit national title. <laughs> <laughs> my, my understanding is that, yes, uh, younger brains are more susceptible to brain injuries from the research studies that I've looked at. Yeah. Um, but maybe Dr. B can elaborate a bit on that. I'm not yeah. allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give you temporary permission. I don't think there's a, there's a, a fine uh, black and white answer to that. I think it really depends on the, on the trauma, the, the vectors, the bracing for it or not bracing for it. There's so many factors involved. I don't think a younger brain or an adult brain. Uh, you know, pre-existing minor injuries that all tabulate together to make you more susceptible. There's a lot of factors involved. So, uh, you know, all factors aside, uh, I think the adult brain and the child brain are, are equally as, as susceptible. Uh, all, you know, the only converse is that because the childhood brain is still forming, the, the possibility, if, if it is an exclusive brain injury, has more ability to heal more maximally than an adult brain does where, um, the pathways are hardwired already and it's a lot more difficult to, to make, make pliable changes. Uh, you're a chiropractor, uh, pedi- 
electrician and a medical imaging uh, expert. Uh, was the chiro- I imagine the chiropractic was first, and then it was decided- first. Yeah, and the second one is actually podiatry, so uh, it was a necessary evil when I was working in the Netherlands. Uh, they required a podiatric. Uh, oh, I must have read that wrong. I thought it said pediatrician. It's, such it's an asshole. Yeah, so over there they require that uh, you have some kind of podiatric uh, designation to be able to um, address issues with people's feet. And that was one of the things that I was uh, interested in at the time because it related to biomechanical problems in the spine. And so by default, I had to go and do that over there to be able to uh, provide those services for patients because they were closely linked to what was happening in their spine. I got you. And then you wound up focusing on the completely other end of the body. Absolutely. Yep. That's due to my own problems. And and obviously that ties into the imaging because, you know, there's a lot of uh, belief around the world that there's, there's not a lot of imaging that can be done to diagnose these problems. And that is all post-mortem. Yeah, I guess so. But there's nothing further from the truth. There's, there's several imaging modalities that can show lots of evidence of what could be found post-mortem if you leave it alone. Uh, talk more about that. I'm a little, I'm a little confused. So when you have vector-related injuries, so uh, something that where there's momentum, so you have two people like Ethan described, you know, him and the other player crashing into each other, not expecting to crash into each other. They're both traveling with some momentum in some direction and then that gets stopped by them smashing into each other. And if they're both in the exact same way, they're going to basically hit each other like two billiard balls and just basically recoil the opposite way. The only difference is, is that a billiard ball is one single entity, whereas a human being's got a skull. It's got seven neck bones, 12 mid back bones and five low back bones if they have all the correct anatomy. And those segments all have to be decelerated at the time of impact in a sort of domino effect. And when they then recoil and hit back the other way, you have the same effect happening. Now they've changed the momentum. They're going the opposite way and they hit the ground. The same thing happens. You know, the skull hits first, for example, and then the first neck bone has to decelerate to come to a stop. The second one does, the third one does, and so on. And it goes down the chain and, and all those chain reaction uh, um, and anatomic components are held together by ligaments, which are fibrous ropes that have very little, if any elasticity whatsoever. And so, when those get challenged by trying to slow down the momentum of these bones, they're apt to basically either stretching or ripping. And whether they stretch or rip, their ability to recoil back to their resting length and heal at that length is very limited to not at all. And so what ends up happening is their stretched version and or their torn version ends up becoming the new normal for that segment. And so then the muscles in that general area have to take over and compensate for that increased movement that is occurring between those two bones, which we call instability or hypermobility. Any way you slice it, there's too much movement. And if it's in an area such as the spine, which the primary job of the spine is to protect the spinal cord and brainstem, um, you're going to end up having movement of vertebrae that are in excess of their normal allotment. And when they go in excess of that, they are apt to pushing up gently and sometimes less than gently against either the spinal cord or the brainstem with certain positions and movements where you'll actually get neurological compression, which then translates into this myriad or cascade of concussive-like symptoms that are perceived to be all coming from the brain, but could be easily be coming from the brainstem indirectly and or the spinal cord indirectly. And so by doing imaging in movement, so doing what's called a motion x-ray, you can delineate excess movement between different segments of the neck and determine is it more on the left, more on the right, more in the front, more in the back, and is it between the second and third bone, first and second bone, et cetera, 
until you delineate the exact ligament at the exact spot or exact spots, if there's plural, and is it left and right? And then you would be able to determine what kind of pressure that excess movement would elicit on which part of the spinal cord or brainstem. And then you correlate that to the known function of that level of the spinal cord or the known function of that part of the brainstem to delineate whether or not the symptoms that the person is eliciting make sense. You know, they're dizzy, they have blurry vision, they have fullness in their ears, you know, hoarseness of their voice, difficulty swallowing, heart palpitations, and the list goes on. You're like, you're like CSI for the spine. Exactly. You got a, you got a crime scene, you work backwards. Ah, C6 did it. I well, knew it. There's, there's lots of examples of that. I mean, the recent Mahomes injury, and then there's obviously the, you know, back to your, your, your and Ethan's love of hockey. There's the, you know, what is it, 2012 or 2011 Sidney Crosby injury. Yeah. I mean, you have game footage or video footage of the actual event, and then you have a premonition as to what you would expect to see on this motion imaging. Then you would be able to then uh, conduct the motion imaging and then correlate the trauma, the vectors of the trauma, which would be the direction and force and momentum of the event, and delineate whether or not what you're seeing on the motion x-ray corresponds to what you would expect to have been injured with those movements. So in his case, it was a rotational force that you know, caused him to be knocked to the ground, and that was his concussion, so to speak. Mm-hmm which ultimately ended up be, becoming after, you know, much uh, difficulty and effort on their part, they finally delineated it as an upper cervical injury, soft tissue injury. And they didn't go as far as, the, you know, describing the exactness of it. But uh, my suspicion is that he tore some ligaments in his upper neck, which is the stuff that I deal with on a daily basis here. I, I think I'm probably not alone in uh, having no idea it had anything to do with the spine. Just always assume that, you know, the brain got bruised and that's where everything was was emanating from. You talked about about uh, taking a, uh, a moving x-ray. Uh, how do you do that? Because whenever we get x-rays, we're supposed to be super, super still. Yeah, so this, this technology is actually the technology that started x-ray in its, in its infant, infant state. And it's basically the inverse of the static imaging that gets done at most x-ray facilities where the bones are white, but soft tissues are darkish. This inverts that. So the bones are actually darkish and the soft tissue is lightish. And so by doing that and inverting that image, you can actually create motion where you don't get blur. The the clarity of the anatomy is not as perfect as, as the static image. But in, in, in the trade-off for that is that you can actually do movement and you can see enough of the anatomy clearly enough without it being blurred out by motion that you can actually follow real time the movement of these bony elements, whether that's in the neck, whether it's in the wrist or the knee or the elbow. And you can actually follow whether or not the biomechanics, so the, the movement uh, vectors and direction are happening as they should based on known mechanics. And if it's not, how is it abnormal? And if it is abnormal, what tissues would be compromised to result in that abnormality. When you see a player like Patrick Mahomes, who scrambles a lot, takes a lot of chances, uh, what do you think, not only as a doctor, but somebody who's an ex-quarterback and in terms of his health after he retires and the longevity of his career playing in that style? I think, dang, I wish I could scramble the way these guys do. I could have scrambled the way because ultimately, you know, scrambling is, is a, is a, is a protective mechanism and any quarterback, young quarterback that gets good at that and trains to basically be deceptive while scrambling is more apt to uh, prevent injury, serious injury, like freak things can happen. And what happened with him was obviously he should have just hit the ground before he even got close to that linebacker, but he was trying to get a first down. And so there's you no know, fine line between being smart and being, being silly. 
but where you don't really need to do that, hit the deck beforehand and, and any hits you're going to get are going to be late hits and retaliatory hits. Whereas when you do something like that, you always open yourself up for injury, but any scrambling quarterback, if they understand that, that notion of, you know, that first down is not as important as getting hit and potentially being injured and then and, and biting it and not getting the first down, which, you know, you don't get paid millions of dollars to not do. And so therefore you do it, but ultimately in the big scheme of things, the coaches, the, the owners, they're going to say, you know, we would have rather had you bite that fourth down and not get a first down, but not get injured as opposed to getting that first down and possibly the next series of plays still being, you know, three and out. Right. And so to avoid that, you know, you got to err on the, on the side of caution and basically, you know, swallow it and, and take the, take the loss and get your defense to get you back on the field. But with the notion of scrambling, I think that's more beneficial to a quarterback than being in the pocket because it gives you the freedom to create. It gives you the freedom to know when you're going to get hit, mm-hmm. assuming that you're you know, basically paying attention and not trying to make that you know Super Bowl play and, and then still getting hit after you release the ball in a vulnerable position. So if you can right. you know, target in on, on being smart, but yet being able to be mobile like that, I think guys like that would technically have better longevity and less of uh, a post um, career problem uh, cascade than the guy who's in the in the pocket and getting basically high load on a regular basis. And getting uh, that blind side one. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that always looks so brutal. They have no idea it's coming. Their body is totally unprepared. Yep. It looks so awful. And in the, this case of Mahomes, I mean, his momentum was going one way and his body was, and then he was wrapped up in a chokehold basically. And his, his collar was being held. And then so his body went one way and his neck went the other way. And his, his head got flexed down as, as, as his uh, face shield touched the ground. And just the way that the linebacker basically traction his neck, it was, it was a brainstem slash spinal cord traction injury that he sustained there. And that's why he didn't actually get concussed in the sense of him having to sit out for a long period of time. So assuming he didn't tear any ligaments in that traction force, um, he'll fully recover from that. Tell, tell us about your personal experiences, some of the worst episodes that you've had. Personally, getting injured myself? Yeah. Um, I've been high load a few times, uh, which didn't result in, in anything more than being winded. It wasn't, uh, didn't feel like anything happened to my neck, but the one event that, that sort of put me into this whole, uh, world after that of, of you know, almost three decades now of, of, of living with this was a simple, you know, again, I was vulnerable. I threw the ball down the field. I was looking at how pretty my throw was the linebacker came through just as I released the ball. So he was fully legal in doing what he did. He didn't hit me hard. What we did, he did was wrap my arms up as he basically bear hugged me and, and his momentum took me backwards and he fell on top of me and I fell backwards onto the ground again, not very hard, but my distraction of staring at my pass and then my, the back of my head with my helmet hitting a, sort of the permafrost in, in Edmonton, which was a colder area than where I was from, um, that, that momentum of my head hitting the ground and then as I explained, my neck vertebrae then mm-hmm. domino, domino uh, decelerating down, down the spine. I was basically uh, knocked out for a split second, got up, and, and I felt like somebody had, you know, shot off a cannon in my head. Uh, it just felt different, you know, metallic taste in your mouth, all that stuff. And so I went off and uh, don't remember any of it. And, you know, my, my defense was basically in Canadian rules, there's three down. So they were two and out. So we were basically, the offense was back in within a short amount of time. And my responsibility as a quarterback was when I'm not in the field, to be beside the head coach or the offensive coordinator, which to me was one and the same, uh, waiting, basically watching the, the game and basically being prepared to go back in. And, and at that one instance, I was actually somewhere on the end of the bench, uh, joking around with my teammates, 
which I wasn't out of the, out of the normal for me to be joking with my teammates. It's just that it was in the middle of a game. Right. And so then there was again, two and out for the defense. And then the, we were going back on the field as an offense and the coach was screaming, looking for me. And finally the word got down to the end of the bench. I'm like, Hey, Sasha, you're in again, offense, offense. And so I, okay, put my helmet on, ran towards the coach out of, you know, automatic, uh, sort of almost like a chicken with his head cut off on, on automatic and uh, walked up to the coach and he gave me the simplest play in the playbook and, and shoot me out onto the field. And I took four steps and I turned back and I said, well, what's that? So I had no idea what he meant by that terminology that he'd given me, which was our simplest play in our playbook, which was just a simple turnaround and hand the ball off. Right. And uh, so he called a timeout and uh, they assessed me and they said, you know, you've been concussed. They took me out of the game and uh, lo and behold, you know, fast forward, uh, 12 years, roughly, I, I you know, was living with symptoms regularly recurring from that, uh, which were progressively getting somewhat worse and discovered that motion x-ray existed and uh, said, this sounds very logical to me. I got to go get this done. And I got it done. And after 12 years of not knowing what was wrong and assuming that I was uh, concussed and I had this brain injury that was sort of tracking me along all along those 12 years, I discovered that it was an actual upper neck ligament injury. And that closure of knowing that was about 80% of my healing, so to speak at the time where I finally knew that there was a physical injury that was visible. And then that, I said, I, I got to go do that with my own patients. I got I got to offer that to my own patients. So there's so many people out there that are falling through the cracks that are being told, Oh, we don't see what's wrong with you, but yet they're having these significant neurological symptoms that they're living with on a daily basis. And you know, their, their families are falling apart, their careers falling apart. And they're living in this in this state of misery that you know they're not getting any answers. And to me, that was amazing to get that answer. And to, uh, now, you know, fast forward again, to be able to provide that to people who have been searching uh, for sometimes years to decades for these answers, and finally getting that answer, you know, in a, in a scope of twenty minutes is is very gratifying. There, the, when you struggle with something, there is something so comforting in having a word for for what it is. Uh, I think one of the hurdles when we're struggling with something that's, you know, maybe a little ephemeral or uh, hard to define is uh, we get mean with ourselves. You know, you're a baby, you're exaggerating, you're making too big of a deal. And when somebody is able to say, hey, this is a real thing that you have, you're, you're not making it up. It, uh, it is such a, it is such a relief. Yeah, there's not a day that goes by where I haven't assessed somebody that has been going through this, where they will walk out of here with tears of joy because they finally have an answer. May not be the answer they were looking for, but it's an answer that gives them a level of closure that they can now proceed with the knowledge and try to make a game plan that's going to be effective as opposed to just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Uh, well, let's segue then into what, what do you do? When, when somebody has a concussion, I know obviously each case is, is different. Each person is different, but what are some of the things that the average person uh, wouldn't know is, is part of the recovery um, foods that you eat uh, natural remedies uh, fill us in. Absolutely. Uh, the biggest thing I think in the, in the acute phase is controlling the inflammation. So, you know, getting enough rest, which is, you know, cliche almost because that's the number one thing that you're told. Um, using a cold pack, head and neck on a very regular basis, several times a day, avoiding dark or I mean, avoiding avoiding light. So seeking the dark, uh, seeking uh, less stimulation, but not for very long, because actually the stimulation, the sooner you can get back into it is actually beneficial to the healing process. 
supplementation with as many antioxidants as you can get into. And sort of Ethan and I were, you know, mulling around with that in the beginning of doing this whole process. And we came up with a list of the major antioxidants that would be most beneficial in the acute phase. But ultimately, you know, most people live in some level of inflammation, even chronically with these problems. And so we formulated a supplement that encompasses the majority of those major antioxidants and healing products um, so that it's very concise because, I mean, there's so many beneficial products that if you have to get a bottle of this and a bottle of that, all of a sudden you've got like 15 bottles. Which is depressing in and of itself. Yeah. So you're popping 15 pills, maybe two or three times a day, which, you know, most people aren't compliant with and will not be compliant with for a long period of time. So if you can have something where they can put a scoop of it into a a glass of water or a smoothie and then have that maybe twice a day. Uh, it makes it that much more tangible. And if it's all concentrated and it's just all the stuff that you need to have and it's sourced from a natural, um, well, um, regulated product line, then you know that the efficacy of that is, is, it's got a chance of doing what it's intended to do. Um, and then obviously staying away from the inflammatory foods of which, you know, the majority are animal proteins, um, not to say that animal proteins are bad, but they tend to be inflammatory for, for most people. And so sticking more to vegetables, uh, some, some fruit, not, not a massive amount of fruit, but vegetables. I mean, there's what kind of fruits are okay. I, all fruits are okay, but I think vegetables in, in the, in the big scheme of things from an anti-inflammatory stance, um, as far as also the complexity of the carbohydrates and the breakdown of them. Uh, and the nutrient value is much greater than, uh, than that of fruits. Not to say that fruits are bad, but if I were to you know, have to pick between, do you, you know, slam your stomach with, with uh, vegetables or fruits? Uh, I would choose for the vegetables any day of the week. And uh, there's no limit to that. What's, what's funny is I did this about five years ago. I just bombarded my system with, uh, with vegetables. And I didn't eat any meat for about two months. I lost 30 pounds and I felt better than I ever have in my entire life. Mind you, I had to take into account the fact that some of the inorganic produce that I was buying needed to be um, devoid of pesticides and herbicides that come naturally with that as a part of the manufacturing process. And so I was either using apple cider vinegar water solution to uh, turn the inorganic into organic or bicarbonate, which is basically baking soda and water solution to uh, use, for example, on apples, uh, which tend to, from my experience anyways, respond uh, the best to get that waxy layer off of them is, is baking soda and, and water. I haven't found that same efficacy with the apple cider vinegar and water and then consuming those uh, fruits and vegetables after you've done that so that you're not consuming a large level of potentially, sorry, potentially consuming a large level of uh, pesticides and herbicides, which aren't really good for you. So those are actually inflammatory. Right. Uh, what are, what are some foods just in general that, uh, or let's say if somebody's experiencing inflammation, I struggle with uh, arthritis. I uh, tested positive for the marker for rheumatoid uh, arthritis. And so I'm, I'm changing up my diet and it's, it's a bit overwhelming at, at first. Uh, and I know that uh, I'm supposed to be focusing on things that are antioxidants and anti-inflammatory. Uh, you know, and one of the positive things is that uh, my mind is feeling better and clearer and probably less depressed than it has in a while. I slipped and had some white flour a couple of days ago and I was depressed for two days after it. And I was like, wow, it, it really is true that what you it put is, it into it your is. body greatly affects your mood. 
and we're so we're so indoctrinated to believe that a particular you know meat and potatoes diet is, is the way it's got to be and, and once you start deviating from that into these sort of especially what you know us rednecks would seem as sort of fringe vegetarian type diets it's even though you feel good it seems unnatural and it's unfamiliar so you right away deviate back from that adrenaline rush of giving the meat and potatoes but I can tell you when I did that for two months, like, like I said, I haven't felt that good ever that I can recall and not to mention the weight loss without even trying. And what? so my go-to, if I were to pick a go-to, if I were going to, if I were, were, would be someone, I, you know what, let, I want to try this and keep it simple for me. I would say on a daily basis for your lunch and dinner, cut up some carrots, cut up some celery, cut up some kale. Um, potentially if you're, if you're savvy enough, you may want to put in some tomatoes or some peppers, but if you want to omit those, because there's some notion out there that, you know, the lectins and whatnot are, are, are not that beneficial for you. Uh, cause ultimately if you perceive that it's going to be beneficial to you, it probably will, unless there's again, some kind of a pesticide in the background that's, that's hindering that. But I would take cut up celery, cut up to, uh, uh, carrots, some cut up kale. I would take either pumpkin seeds and or uh, sunflower seeds or cashews. And I would basically put that into this salad mix. And what I do myself is I take some apple cider vinegar, some olive oil to create a dressing. Um, I put salt and pepper in it. And I put a little bit of Dijon mustard in it and a tiny little bit of maple syrup. And I mix that together and I will put garlic in it if I'm not having to go out or go to work or something like that, because that's very beneficial as well. Some fresh pressed garlic. And then I will make that salad dressing out of that. And then I will actually put it into that salad into a Tupperware bowl and I'll shake it up so that it's mixed around everywhere. And if you let that sit from, you know, if you make it before you leave for work kind of thing, if you go to a job and you let it sit like that, not in the fridge, but out of the fridge uh, until you get your lunch, it's kind of absorbed nicely into the, into the nuts and into the, into the carrots and celery and the kale. And then when you eat that, it's actually a phenomenal taste. It, it tastes so good. And, and what I've noticed when I've done that is I'll, I'll, gobble a ton of that stuff up and what normally I'd experience in my afternoon sort of a afternoon dip I never have that with this I actually fully feel energetic for the rest of that afternoon and I'm working and I'm more energized at the end of the day than I normally am when I've had a you know stereotypical kind of meal whether it's a sandwich or you know maybe some some takeout or whatever from here or some some falafel or whatever but what yeah. led you to go back to animal protein? Were you craving it when you were doing the all veggie? I think just familiarity. I mean, I grew up, I'm a, my background is uh, like both of my parents are Croatian. And so it's, it's a meat and potatoes kind of society. And obviously they do have salads with everything and soups with everything. I think that's the saving grace for the Balkan culture is that the, the soups are very healthy. The salads are very healthy. Um, and then the, you know, the grilled meat and the potatoes are, are what they are, but, uh, I think the saving grace is the olive oil and the vinegar that they use in the, in the salad dressings and all the vegetables they put in the soups that sort of neutralizes all the bad of the meat. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Croatia. Well, I love it. Yeah. It becomes habitual. You just go back to familiarity, you know, that, you know, you, you know, you're doing something right, but it just doesn't feel familiar and your brain wants to revert. So you really yeah. have to be disciplined to stay in that, in that, on that path without deviating back. So, uh, were, did you feel like you were physically craving protein or you just wanted to go back to the familiar because mentally it was just easier and it felt right? It just felt familiar. I don't, I don't know that it felt right. Like I've said many times since then, I got to go back to that. Right. And it's just a matter of, I think things getting bad enough, whether it's, you know, digestive wise or headache wise to go, okay, I'm going to do it now. Right. 
I know, I mean, I preach it every day to people. It's just, uh, you know, it's a matter of, 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 of biting the bullet and doing it. It's that simple. I'm, I'm my own biggest obstacle. Have you guys worked with uh, Eric Lindros at all? For, for the people that aren't familiar with hockey, Eric was a great hockey player in the in the 90s and played very physically and got concussed several times. And last I heard, he was had a some type of foundation or some type of research project where he was looking into uh, traumatic brain injury stuff, especially in sports. Is is he still doing that? Not sure. Uh, we haven't done anything with him. Okay. I've got to stop looking at Wikipedia. <laughs> it's possible. I just I mean, there's so yes. many so much stuff going on. It's hard to keep abreast on on everything. What are some of the myths about concussions? and brain injuries and uh, you know, the spine being stressed, stuff that we talked about that you'd like people to know. Things that you wish somebody would have told you when you were suffering. Well, I think from my own personal perspective after- living, Who are you? <laughs> I'm the other guy here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, going through, going through my own concussions uh, throughout like, over the years of being a teenager and a young kid. And uh, always when I was, like I didn't meet Dr. Voskovich until I was 26. And always before that, people were always just focused on the brain and that it was a brain injury. I went to the Vancouver Children's Hospital, got an MRI on my brain because I was having all kinds of symptoms and issues in school and stuff. And we, we just couldn't figure out why I was still having symptoms and why I was still feeling the way I was feeling. And they just looked at the brain. They didn't look at my neck at all. And basically the, the neuro uh, guys just said, you know, I don't, I don't see anything on here that is indicating that you, you know, have any serious issues with your brain. I don't know why you're having these symptoms, basically go home. Like, I don't have anything else to suggest to you kind of thing. And that, that happened when I was about 15 or 16. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. Might as well just keep playing hockey and, you know, keep doing things I enjoy. Ended up getting more and more compassions after that as well. And um, so I think one of the biggest myths that people uh, believe in is that it's only to do with the brain when you hit your head. Um, and Dr. Blaskovich was the first person that exposed the, uh, the underlying issue in the neck. And, it, and he offered to do a motion x-ray on me, uh, which we got done within a couple of weeks after first meeting. And uh, he immediately found that I had ligament damage on both sides of my neck. And that was what was causing my long-term issues, long-term symptoms, and the reoccurring symptoms. And so that was just completely mind-opening and mind-blowing to me because nobody in the previous, you know, 15 or so years had ever said anything about getting my neck assessed or looking at my neck or uh, causing these neurological issues. Have either of you experienced uh, as, a, as a result of this uh, feelings of hopelessness, depression, suic suicidal thoughts? The first two, yes. The last one, no. Okay. I think my, my saving grace was, has been the fact that I, you know, even before I had this injury um, and before I even went into university, I knew I wanted to have this as my profession. And so my saving grace was going into this profession, which A, gave me the, the background, um, very, very broad uh, and detailed knowledge of anatomy and physiology and pathology. And then the, the, the education or the, the training on how to go and search for more knowledge where knowledge is not concisely presented in a textbook, for example, 
how to sift through the research and how to search for things within the research that are of interest to you and see if you can find something. And inevitably, um, that's been very gratifying because there's so much information out there that doesn't get compiled into a concise textbook uh, that is, you know, pulling from the muscle physiology, pulling from neurophysiology, from anatomy, from biomechanics, and then piecing that all together to, you know, come, come up with a story that uh, seems very logical and, and on a daily basis, it gets validated here by, by way of, you know, someone coming in explaining their past history, whether it's injury and whether it's sometimes even uh, things like rheumatoid arthritis, like you mentioned on yourself. So a congenital condition or an autoimmune condition, which affects soft tissues and the erosion of soft tissues, and then confirming that there is damage to those tissues, whether by way of injury or by way of inflammatory erosion, by way of assessing for instability and coming, uh, coming up with an answer to that, and then going down a path that actually deals with addressing the instability itself and also the tissues that would then be put in a continuous vicious cycle to try to stabilize that instability. So, so uh, Ethan, you, you found out that you had this uh, ligament damage. Uh, you're still an active person. You, obviously, you play hockey. I was reading that you dirt bike, uh, do other kinds of, of things that are very active. What was the protocol for you to, to be able to do this and to in, increase uh, you know, feeling vital and, and healthy? What I've discovered over the years is that, uh, especially when you're dealing with a, an upper cervical injury, um, it's mostly about managing and just being aware, self-aware of what different types of scenarios cause an increase in symptoms, and then knowing what kind of tools that you can use to then decrease your symptoms if they do appear. So I do a lot of ATVing, I still play hockey, I go snowboarding, uh, do a lot of active things where there's a lot of sort of jarring activity. And I can feel like I went, I went sea doing on Sunday and I can feel my neck is a little bit tight right now. And so I know that when my neck is feeling tight like that, it might start triggering some headaches or some other symptoms in my like tightness in my jaw and whatnot. And Dr. B's actually developed a tool called Dr. B's trigger pointer, uh, which is like an S shaped kind of tool. Uh, and basically what I'll do is I'll lay on my side and wedge that tool into my neck and basically apply consistent uh, sustained pressure for 30 to 60 seconds on each spot that feels tender. And that essentially releases the lactic acid from those muscles that have become uh, in, that have gone into a lockdown state because of the uh, shifting motion from the previous days. And so it basically releases the, the lactic acid like you see NHL players go on bikes after a game to release the lactic acid from their legs. And it basically brings it back to a homeostasis where everything's sort of feeling better and functioning better. And, um, and then also just being aware of what foods I'm eating, uh, trying to avoid alcohol as much as possible and other inflammatories is very important too. Um, I noticed that I feel uh, if any weekend I do drink, I feel a lot more uh, headaches and other types of concussion symptoms for the next couple of days after that. So I'm actually doing a four month break from alcohol right now, just to see what, how I feel over a long-term uh, period of, you know, just taking a total break from alcohol. So there, there wasn't any uh, physical uh, in, intrusive reparation of the ligaments. There was no surgery or anything like that. Your, your neck wasn't put in a cast or anything like that? No, no. Uh, it's just all sort of active management kind of things that I can do myself. And uh, that, that's the whole reason why we wanted to write this book was to basically compile 
the best methods that both I have used and Dr. Blaskovich has used to actively manage our post-concussion symptoms day by day, week by week, depending on how we feel, without requiring pharmaceutical drugs, uh, developing any kind of drug dependency, uh, or requiring any expensive medical procedures or surgeries, uh, because those can run fifty, hundred thousand dollars. And and all of these protocols and diets and this stuff, I imagine, would apply to whiplash as well. Somebody gets in a car accident, stuff like that, where you know maybe their head didn't make contact with something, but there was that uh, that force on it. That absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that's the whole notion of the book is that. This, uh, this, we've termed it a breakthrough, but it's ultimately saying that it's, it's really difficult to have a momentum injury, whether it's a car crash or a hockey injury or a football injury, and expect that only the brain inside the skull can be affected by this acceleration, deceleration phenomenon, that the components that are attached to the skull, which would be the neck bones, have to be affected by that. And if, again, if you don't hit your head, you're still decelerating the brain with this whipping motion. So the, the combination of brain slash neck injury or concussion slash whiplash, it, it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's synonymous, but it's pretty close to being synonymous in most cases. Is there anything that a chiropractor can handle or solve or treat that is better than any other modality? I don't think that, uh, I mean, that the statements, um, I mean, I just mean in general, not with uh, concussions. Yeah. Because um... one of the things that's frustrating sometimes as a human being is you don't know what is your best option. And that in itself can be overwhelming. Where do I even begin? Well, I think I'm just going to take a nap and wish my life were different. I think the best, the best starting point for anybody, whether it's any, I mean, there's tons of amazing physiotherapists, massage therapists, chiropractors. Uh, naturopaths. The the bottom line is that when I consider a, a practitioner to be a valuable practitioner for a patient, no matter what kind of problem they're coming in with, is that examination, history, and diagnostics have to be at the forefront of whatever happens after that. And more often than not, the problems occur with lack of efficacy of the whatever the treatment modality is, is that the history is limited and and there's some minor amount of palpation, which is feeling of tissues and then bang, you get right into treatment. And again, that sort of brings you into a regimen of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And hopefully certain things stick better for other things, but a thorough workup up front, whether it's from a chiropractor, whether it's from a physiotherapist, whether it's from a massage person, a naturopath, those are essential. And I think all those professions can treat all the different physiologic problems well, so long as the workup is done thoroughly. And that's sort of something that I've prided myself on in all the clinics that I've owned and worked is that the initial uh, visit is very lengthy compared to most of my colleagues, at least, because I pride myself on determining what is actually wrong with this person and not where their symptoms are. Because nine times out of 10, what's wrong with them isn't where the symptoms are manifesting. And so by determining what I find as the root cause of their problem, I can work on that. And then whatever symptoms they're feeling elsewhere will dissipate on their own as a result of addressing the cause. And that's a sort of a cliche is treating the cause, but a simple thing with relation to the whiplash and concussion, there are four little tiny muscles at the base of the skull in the back on the left and four on the right. And these things coordinate the, 
the movements between the head and the upper neck. And so those muscles all have direct linkages to our spinal cord and brainstem covering so that when those muscles get tight, it affects our brain by putting tension on those brain and, and spinal cord and, and brainstem coverings. And so by releasing the tension on those, the person might feel a headache in their forehead and, and behind their eyes, but yet I'm not going to press in behind their eyes. I'm going to press on those four little muscles up top there. And if they elicit the pain in behind their eye or recreate the headache behind their eye, know that that's part of the cause of their problem. So they're feeling the symptoms behind their eye or in their forehead. But when I press on those spots back there, based on a thorough examination and workup, and it recreates the symptoms behind their eye, if I can maintain the pressure on that spot that's recreating the symptoms, once I've stopped putting pressure on there, their symptoms will be reduced, thereby indicating that the cause of their problem isn't behind the eye, it's somewhere else, but it's being felt behind the eye. Fascinating. I feel like we could, we could talk about this stuff uh, all day. Uh, if you had the power to be the, the master, the commissioner of all contact sports, what were some rules? What are some rules that you would implement? What are some things that you would outlaw? Uh, well, it's hard to outlaw cheap hits because that's a subjective thing. Some are very obvious and other ones are sort of subjective to. You know, and when someone's people. running the score up, it's really the only way to teach them. I think, yeah, I think the, the most important thing with contact sports from an amateur to a professional level is that when an event happens, that um, an onus gets put on assessing the, the, the game footage or the practice footage, video footage, very thoroughly from a CSI standpoint to determine whether or not there's a likelihood that this is actually a head injury or if it's an upper neck injury or a combination of the two. And that is possible in almost every case, so long as you have a few angles to look at, which in professional athletics, thankfully we do. But in the amateur sports, inevitably it would be great if they could mandate some kind of a, uh, uh, not a law, but a regulation where uh, there has to be filming done of amateur sports so that when an event does happen, which inevitably will, you can't take, you, you can't stop contact sports. Um, because I think there's more benefits than, than risks to contact sports from a discipline standpoint, educational standpoint, camaraderie standpoint, you know, teamwork standpoint that are valuable for life. But when there is an event, I think the workup of that event needs to be done more professionally in, in, in a CSI fashion, but it requires there to be visible evidence, almost like a dash cam for a car accident, where you can actually break that down and say, okay, this is what we believe happened and let's go and assess for that specifically and see if we find something if we don't let's start fishing elsewhere but with that footage in hand it's it's uh i would say probably 80 to 90 percent efficacy of where you're going to go look for the problem assuming that the person has a persistent complaint after that problem and and, and addressing it from that standpoint i love it that makes sense but where are you going to find people uh, with iphones to to take care of this <laughs> We're in a time and age where that should be standard, right? It should. We're telling people put their, their phones away. Here's the one time we need you to yes. break your phone out. Uh, guys, really enlightening conversation. Uh, high five on all the work that, that you're doing. It's, it's so important. Uh, the name of the book is Dr. B's Con uh, Concussion Breakthrough. People can find it uh, at Amazon. What is your website? It's concussionrecoverykit.com. Guys, uh, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? 
Uh, yes, a couple things. Um, if, if people are suffering from a concussion or if they know someone who's experiencing long-term post-concussion symptoms, they can check out our website where we have our supplements, we have the book available. Uh, we uh, also have just our online courses available as well as the concussion recovery kit, which includes Dr. B's trigger pointer, which we talked about for treating the neck, as well as the supplements and all the information that we have. And basically the, the, the goal or the idea with building this was we wanted, there's a few necessary components to concussion recovery. Number one is under, getting education and understanding what's going on inside the body so that you can then know, okay, I need to be doing these habits every day because they're going to make a difference. Because if you don't know what's, what the education aspect of it, you won't, it, you, you, want, you might be like, well, what's the point of me eating healthy today? Or what's the point of me taking right. supplements, right? I'll just eat, I'll eat McDonald's today. But if you actually know the physiology and, and the actual uh, science behind it, then you're a lot more likely to stick to the habits. Um, and then another big component of it is supplementation, because these days our food is just so devout devo of nutrients um, that uh, it, it, we, you really need to supplement the brain to be able to give it the nutrients and the, and the, the vitamins and minerals that it needs to be able to fight off the inflammation and reduce the oxidative stress which long-term re helps reduce the, the, uh, the risk of developing brain damage. Um, and, and one of the major issues that I personally experienced is, is, and Dr. Blaskovich has also experienced is with a concussion, it, it really requires a lifestyle change and a big change to your habits overall. And that's really hard for a lot of people to do. Like changing habits is very difficult. So uh, we wanted to try and lay out things that are pretty simple to do each day um, and, and also help educate people as to, you know, this is why you should be following these habits and why you should really make these lifestyle changes a major priority in your life. And, and I would add to anybody out there who is afraid of, of making the, the lifestyle choice because it feels so confusing and overwhelming at first is that it does get, it does get easier. If you just say, this is, this is something that is, uh, you know, there's, there's no debate about it. I'm just going to do it. After a couple of weeks, you're just like, wow, I can't believe I thought this was such a big deal. Uh, I found, I find that the more I eat vegetables, the less I hate eating them. Uh, I've replaced crackers with celery. I eat raw cashew butter with it. And I eat a ton of it. I eat uh, apples with uh, pistachio butter and it, it, not being able to have dessert or pizza or stuff like that at first was, you know, I just felt like, God, why even, I can't eat ice cream. Why even be alive? And I just <laughs> find now that there are still things I enjoy it. They've just shifted. Yeah. yeah the key is doing it uh, as soon as you think of doing it because your brain is a inhibitory organ, not an organ of action. And so if you give yourself a chance to talk yourself out of it, you will. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much i really really enjoyed talking to you appreciate your time thank you thanks yeah, for having us grateful. thank you really enjoyed talking to them and uh as always we put links to our guests uh social media websites etc under the show notes for this episode carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car that's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Before uh, we read some surveys, I just want to address uh, what happened last week with Irish Siri. Uh, you know, it started off really nice with her. She was very complimentary, and then something happened. I don't know if I did something to upset her, but it really, really went downhill, and um, I I hope it doesn't happen again um, because I really try to keep the quality of this show uh, up there, and I apologize uh, to anyone uh, who was offended by the things that she said to me. Paul, I apologize for my inappropriate behavior last episode. I've not been myself. Well, I hope not, because uh, it didn't feel good to be on the receiving end of that. Please forgive me. <laughs> okay, I forgive you. Just please. Wonderful. I look forward to a clean slate on this beautiful podcast hosted by a handsome and talented man. All right. Well, that that's a little bit much. Have I, you ever considered moving to Ireland and running for president? I would endorse you wholeheartedly. Okay, that's enough. Let's uh, let's get going. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the uh, Growth Recovery Moment survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Fake Name. Uh, and he writes, When I suddenly realized my thought processes, which used to spiral me into depression, were just a habit, and I could think of new perspectives. God, that's such a great one. And there's an awesome book that kind of covers that uh, called A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And it's one of the more profound books I've I've ever read. Really helpful. And it's I find it to be a great book to just read like a paragraph in the morning. And it just kind of sets my head straight. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Doom and Gloom on a Lovely Afternoon. And she asks, what's it like working on the podcast now versus what it was like in the early days? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure if I can put it into words. I, I think in the in the beginning, there was a lot more newness to it. And there were topics that I had no, no understanding of. So I think there was a lot more learning in the beginning and kind of finding what worked on the podcast and what didn't. I think probably the biggest one is the first year or two of the podcast, I felt such a desperate need to be seen and heard that I would just steamroll over my guests while they were talking. It was kind of embarrassing, but thankfully you guys very, very diplomatically uh, kind of let me know uh, through your emails and in the forum and stuff like that. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? They should replace the host with Irish Siri, and Paul could be her sidekick slash co-host. While I agree I would crush it as a host, I prefer to move forward without Paul. He means well. Uh, you said you were going to pipe down. Let's keep it that way. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and Liz asks, uh, This is a welfare check on mean DJ voice. I would like to please know, A, whether he is alive and well, and whether he could please read some happy moments sometimes. Maybe just the ones that are a little too happy and, you know, temper that shit a little. 
Uh, mean DJ voice uh, left of his own accord uh, about a year ago. Help! Uh, never mind that noise. Uh, yeah, we just uh, we parted ways, and uh, I wished him the best. And he is the quad city. he's safe and happy. All right, let's get serious. This is this is a very heavy survey. The two the two uh, two of the surveys that we have left to read are quite graphic. And um, this one that I'm about to read, uh, it I found like my hands almost shaking when I was read it, reading it uh, because it just, uh, even though it was more, way more intense than what I experienced as a as a uh, kid, it uh, it was still pretty pretty heavy to uh, to read. Uh, the name of the survey is sexual abuse or violation of young male by older female and that's filled out by a guy who calls himself okay he says that he was raised in a stable and safe environment uh let's see how old he is uh he's in his 60s um identifies as straight and he writes um to the to the question uh, are you describing a fantasy uh or uh something that actually happened and he writes, not a fantasy. Uh, from when I was nine until past my 12th birthday, my biweekly babysitter was a middle-aged woman who went to our church. With mom's permission, she always gave me a bath. She met, First of all, what is your mom thinking? Uh, having somebody give you a bath when you're between those ages. I mean, a kid can fucking shower on their own when they're six years old. Anyway, she made a point of needing to pee as soon as I was in the tub so I would get a close look at her hairy bottom while she stood to take her pants up and down inches from my face. I had no de- no idea what I was seeing. I just knew it was forbidden. She never invited me to touch her and I never asked. I got to watch her pee come out. Then she would begin with soapy hands. She paid a lot of attention to washing my penis giving me my first boners, rolling my foreskin back and forth. When I was about 10, my first ejaculations were from her soapy hand jobs. She said it was all natural and normal. She often said I shouldn't be embarrassed, but it would be better if I didn't tell anyone. I didn't. She said she would stop bathing me if I wanted her to stop. I had to admit to her that I liked it. She had always wet washed the crack of my bum. At some point, she started putting her fingertip up my bum while her other hand was on my boner. When she did that, I would come harder and longer. Sometimes I got two penis rubs during one bath. Uh, Did you ever tell anyone? I never told anyone until now. Um, Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I didn't like her as a person, but I loved the genital attention. It was very confusing because bodies and sex were such forbidden topics. She was a married lady who I would see in church the next day. She always complimented my parents about how well-behaved I was and how much she enjoyed sitting for me. Both of my parents obviously thought well of her. I have memories of looking at her husband and kids while she was talking about sitting with me and wondering what they knew, if anything. I wanted to ask her son if his mom did the same for him, but I didn't dare. Uh, Do you feel any damage was done? Uh, Confusion about who to expect to be sexual. I feel grateful for all of the early hand jobs. She always pretended that it was part of my bathing process. We both knew 
that we both knew it wasn't. The ritual of pretending made it okay, but we never once talked about any of it outside the bathroom. Um, it was a very real mixed blessing. Uh, any other... Uh, have you ever been the victim of any sexual abuse outside of the events described here? Uh, he wrote some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was 15, a friend of my mom's had sex with me. I think my friend's mom uh, knew it was going to happen before I did. It was good sex. She was my first real sex partner and a good teacher. Uh any comments to make the podcast better? Acknowledging that young males can be taken advantage of sexually by older women is an amazing start. Thank you. Uh, you know, I had mixed feelings reading this because your experience and your opinions on your experience are yours. And I, it is, it is, uh, it doesn't matter what I think, but there's a part of me that gets kind of enraged when, um, when people don't see it for the abuse that it was. But I also understand that because our body and our soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. And I think there's also a hurdle for males to call it abuse uh, because, you know, we got erections. And it it might have been uh, exciting. And I think we are kind of programmed in many ways, to think that if there's an erection, uh, it, it can't be abuse. And it's so it's so not true. It's so complicated. But I, I really want to thank you for for sharing that. And I don't know if, if, you know, I read stuff that was unnecessarily graphic, but one of the things that I feel is sometimes being specific about what happened uh, can be uh, can help in the healing process. The, I, I feel like, and I could be wrong here, that the more we shine a light on all the aspects of it, uh, the, the more power we take away from the shame or the secretiveness of it. This is from the Moment of Growth and Recovery survey filled out by a woman who calls herself self-proclaimed trauma advocate. And... Uh, she writes, uh, accepting that my childhood was traumatic and not just how people were raised where I lived. That's such a great one. That's such a great one because it's like when we are surrounded by crazy, it is so hard to call crazy for what it, what it is. Jesus, I mean, good job. Come on. Look, I can't do this. I don't think your ass has room for any more smoke. Really? Sayonara, fat ass. Okay. I meant to say have a wonderful day. We're done. All right. Now, serious, serious. Uh, this is the other survey that I was talking about that uh, is heavy and uh, graphic. And this is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Creepy Little Fairy. Uh, she identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes. Uh, and she reported it. 
Uh, I've been sexually abused by all the men I've ever loved, but the most significant and traumatic experience was when I was molested and raped by my brother-in-law. I was kicked out of my aunt's house, and my sister took me in. She was literally my idol. The reason my hair is as long as it is now is because she always had long, beautiful, flowing hair. I would have never discovered <clears throat> excuse me, my love of music if it wasn't for her. <clears throat> A few months into living with her, her boyfriend slash you know, uh, slash, and then in quotes, husband, and two daughters, things started to get very odd. One day, I was 16. I used her bathroom and had to change my tampon and saw someone peek into an open slit in the window while I did so. We made direct eye contact as I slid the plastic applicator into me. I felt sick to my stomach but couldn't bring myself to say anything to my sister. Later on, while living with her on two occasions, I found cameras filming under clothes and in laundry hampers in the same bathroom in which I was showering. I wanted to destroy the camera, but her boyfriend made me give them back to her uh, after I'd stolen them from their hiding places. A while passed, and eventually I'd end up drunk at his parents' house at 17. I began to feel sick and tried to spend the night in a guest bathroom to hide from the noise and chaos that was their family. While I clung to the toilet, my usual safe space, I felt someone come in and join me. My sister's boyfriend began to rub my back and would soon start making out with me. Once I stopped being sick, he would pick up my small body and carry me to the guest bedroom where he'd start to eat me out. This would be the first time I'd ever experienced this. Here, I have to say, I was in a long-distance relationship with my high school sweetheart who had been telling me I need to find somewhere else to live or else something bad would happen. So while I was being eaten out by my brother-in-law, I could only fantasize that it was my boyfriend. And in parentheses, we're still together and just celebrated eight years. Soon, my own sister came into the room to which he started eating her out while massaging me. Soon she left, and as she exited the room, she explicitly told him, don't fuck her, and closed the door. I had been on a couch this whole time, and when he knew she was gone, he flipped me on my stomach. At this point, as a 17-year-old, I thought he was going to put himself inside my ass, but uh, he just did me from behind while I wished to God he was my boyfriend. His mom came into the room, saw what was happening, and left. Then he was done, and I was laying in a wet spot that made me think, did I like this? The next day, I woke up thirsty and hungover. I smoked more weed that day than I ever had in my life. Uh, I would do that every day uh, for years until my senior year in high school. Then my mental illness peaked, and I had my first dissociative episode and panic attack. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Almost every caregiver I've ever had has done one or the other or both. Any positive experiences with abusers? I've loved all my abusers. Most of them, that should be a t-shirt, most of them have been some kind of parental figure to me. If any of my abusers are still in my life, I aim to please them and crave their approval a lot. I have good memories with all of them, honestly. Darkest Thoughts I want to hurt a lot of people. Specifically, there are two or three people I'd love to slaughter like the cattle they are. I think about having sex with people at work, with a stranger who could hurt me. Darkest secrets. I'm scared I want my brother-in-law to do what he did. I've thought about having sex with some of my family members. 
uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I want my latest ex-boyfriend to kidnap me and torture me and make me his forever, and I want my current boyfriend to watch and to get off on it. I want every man who's ever loved me to rape me while everyone watches. I want them to make me ashamed for rejecting them. Writing this down makes me feel empty that these, these things will never happen. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Empty and sick and like I need to drink. Any comments to make the podcast better? Honestly, no. I really appreciate this podcast and it makes me cry a lot at work, which is totally the best place to cry! Exclamation point. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm so, so sorry that you had to go through all of that. And, you know, you said that you haven't shared that with anybody. And I'm sure it is scary as fuck to go back into that that dark space and recall those things. And um, I really, really encourage you to find somebody safe to open up and to, and to start to heal. Uh, it really sounds like you're carrying a lot of shame. And, um, you know, one of the confusing things when we experience trauma or abandonment or any kind of, of, of pain uh, is, is our brain a lot of times sexualizes it, which makes us feel like it's our fault and it was not your fault. And then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Tay. And Tay writes, I love petting the patch of hair between a dog's nose and mouth. I fucking love that. I do that with Gracie all the time. And it's just and then I love when her eyes just slowly close. That is like one of the best feelings is when you you can get your it's almost like you're hypnotizing your dog with with uh with petting. Uh, I love when people call me an call me an old soul because I love being called an old soul. I love that my friends don't judge me that I ask the waiter or waitress for a fork at our ramen spot because I still don't know how to use chopsticks. I think that's a really, really common one. I always feel, I I do the chopsticks because I want to please the people at the restaurant. I don't want to get a dirty look. Uh, Thank you for your surveys. And to to those of you that are are out there and are just... uh, wounded and confused and and hurting um i'm sending you some love i am sending you some love and um just never forget that you're not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way